Welcome back to another episode of Consciously Clueless. I'm your host, Carly, and I'll be your guide on this journey from consciousness to cluelessness and back around again. Today on the podcast, I talk to Uni Nambudaripad. Uni cultivates capacity for social change, in particular for non-human animals. He brings together communities to heal emotionally, spiritually, physically, and socially to help us be more loving, compassionate, and sustainable activists. In this episode, Uni and I talk about showing up as our authentic selves, having humility for where everyone is at on their journey, and he tells a story about a sheep named Frederick raised by dogs. Here we go. Um, So the podcast is called Consciously Clueless, and I chose that because I realized for myself I was exploring this space where, you know, you wake up some days and you're like, oh, I'm feeling really with it. I'm so there. I'm conscious. I'm on top of it. And then there's those days you wake up and you're like, I'm totally clueless. I have no idea what I'm doing in this life and everything in between, right? That's, that's part of it. So I'm wondering, the question I like to ask people to start is where are you at right now on that spectrum of conscious to clueless right in this moment? Um, yeah, I, I think Carly that I, I feel um, you know, relatively conscious. I um, have some clarity about things I want to do. Those things to be seem to be moving forward. I feel good about that. I feel confident that these are in alignment with my highest values, mm. and so that's good. But I, you know, I had a destabilizing week last week, and um, was asking some hard questions about, you know, am I. Uh, you know, is there some behavior that I've been doing that has been harmful mm. and that do I need to cultivate some more humility um, and, you know, and, and also really um, struggling with conflict and um, with uh, feeling that, uh, you know, somebody, uh, you know, I, I was saying last Monday night, I, after this conflict, I was feeling uh, uh, vindictive self-righteousness, you know, and I was letting my, giving myself space for that, right? But I, you know, and I had kind of an emotional hangover the next day. And mm-hmm. does, does that make sense? Yeah. And yes. so, you know, I, I'm, you know, I feel confident that the, the behavior of the other person is something that, um, you know, doesn't work well for me. And, you know, this, this is hard, but I don't, you know, but, but I also, um, uh, yeah, it, it asks some hard questions about me too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying try to hold all of this stuff without a lot of shame. That's the, you know, like all of our actions, the person I'm having conflict with, my own, like what's happened in the past. And yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a certain level of consciousness that's there, even just being able to ask those hard questions of ourself, right? Because there's a lot of times you Mm -hmm. can move through life without asking the questions of how I played a part in this situation or what my role was or whatever that is. Right. And, you know, there's that meta level where I'm thinking, well, gosh, I'm so smart that I even know to ask these questions, right? You know, and I think that, you know, the uh, like a, a really humble spiritual approach to this is to really just uh, to um, kind of let go uh, feeling attached to being right and know, mm. you know, knowing that what I'm doing is like the best thing ever or anything like that. And Yeah. <laughs> Those are hard life lessons, but they're important. Yeah. So you have a very long history in the animal rights world. Yeah. You've done so much work um, in Minnesota, as far as I know, mostly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've pretty much always lived here, yeah. Okay. Um, So I'm curious, what is your becoming vegan story? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, even as soon as you said you have a long history, the first thing that comes to mind is I have mixed feelings about talking about it. I mean, I, the stuff that I've done, I feel such an honor and privilege to be able to do what I've done. And I, but I also, I look at my past and I don't want that to define me because mm. I'm trying to do new things now. And the particular question that you ask about my vegan story is interesting. And I'll, I'll first, I'll tell the story and I'll tell you why, um, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting about um, asking the question from that direction. So I, um, 
my parents are immigrants from India and uh, they had come from a background for hundreds or maybe thousands of years of uh, vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, it's sometimes the ethical nature of that is um, a little unclear. It had evolved into both our religious and cultural practice. Um, but, um, you know, there is a strong t- tradition. And so my, my family's uh, Hindu, there's a strong tradition of, of really not, not having the boundaries of what we think about between humans and animals and really thinking about um, suffering in individuals mm. and, 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 and good reason to believe that there was some ethical background to this vegetarianism. So mm-hmm. I, um, my parents uh, came here before I was born and growing up, I ate uh, all vegetarian food at home and my mom uh, remained and still is a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. But my dad and my brothers and I um, ate meat growing up outside of the house. Okay. And uh, the, the two um, turning factors or, or a, a couple of the first turning factors in, in becoming vegan was Uh, First, when I was about 10 years old in India, and I I never had any companion animals growing up at home, but there was these semi-feral cats Mm -hmm. that my second cousin uh, befriended, one of which he named Bobby after the American chess player, uh, (laughs) Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer. Yeah, you know that name. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because even then he was a historical figure, but I realized his second cousin of mine would, would have been old enough to know him when he was alive. And so he named this, he, he, obviously this is my second cousin, Narayan, and he liked to uh, play chess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we'd play chess together sometimes too. Anyway, this, this kitten was really um, adorable and friendly. And uh, my brother, Krishna and I, we would throw Bobby and the other cat higher and higher. And yeah, <laughs> and, uh, you know, just learning this, how cats can land on the feet and they did. Mm. But, you know, they started to run away from us when yeah. we did this. And, you know, Narayan and said to us, like really calmly with even, uh, uh, even voice said, if you keep doing that, they'll die. And I felt so ashamed. Mm. And I, you know, I, I recognized then it took a while to act on it, but I recognized I wouldn't want to hurt an animal if I could yeah. avoid that. Yeah. You know, I, th- so this is, um, in now more than 30 years ago. And I just thinking about these stories more recently, I, I hadn't really talked to anybody about it. And my second co- cousin, Irina, he died a long time ago. And, but I asked my brother about this last year and he remembers most of this. And it's pretty amazing to yeah. think how long ago this was. Anyway, um, the next story is when I was 19 and I went to India so I would visit, I should say, I should, would visit India um, for a few months every three years or so to, to okay. see family. But that trip was different because it was the first time I really traveled um, throughout India with my brother and I, my, my brother Christian and I, um, without uh, other relatives and mm-hmm. we saw a lot. And I, um, at the end of the trip, I decided to become a vegetarian. And I think that... Um, you know, I wasn't motivated by health or ethics or environment, but it just like felt like the right things to do uh, mm-hmm. in my, you know, it's the, the tradition that my family did that felt right. And when I, and, and it was very easy for me to do having grown up with the food that I ate, I didn't right. have any questions about whether I would be healthy or not, or what I would eat or anything like that. Um, do you feel like when you were growing up and you were eating meat outside of the house, did you feel like you kind of had a foot in both worlds? Like, your mom presenting vegetarian food and Hinduism and then kind of like the Americanized Big Mac. Yeah, definitely. But you know how it is when you're a kid, everything just seems normal. Right. Right. And so I didn't think about it that way, but yeah, I mean, I, I felt uh, equally comfortable, you know, I, I loved to eat at Burger King and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and loved hamburgers. Yeah. And when I would visit family in India and eat all vegetarian food, I loved that too. Either okay. one fine and it, and because my mom was very much she she never expressed uh you know her opinions or her values or said that we should do things one way or the other uh because of that it, i didn't even understand until i was an adult that 
that there was this idea that people had a problem with eating meat or that there oh, was yeah, something yeah. wrong. And actually, that's part of how I became vegan is because I still at the age of 19, I was completely unaware of that. And then I started talking to people, asking the question about the ethical, you know, is it is it okay to hurt animals or not? And well, I would, ha- you know, I had a specific conversation. This is only probably like a month or two after coming back from India. Uh, and, uh, you know, I asked the question, the person I was asking knew I was vegetarian, but what they mm-hmm. didn't know is that I didn't really, I didn't have any ethical inclination there. And so yeah. when I was asking it, it was really an open question and uh, they got really defensive. And, and I was just like, what's this about? I don't understand why somebody would be defensive. You know, this is not yeah. how the conversation would have went with my mom or anything. And, uh, um, or that she would have had it with somebody else. It's not, right. it, not like that and so anyway that got me to ask questions interesting and then involved in other activist things and I knew people who were vegans and involved in animal advocacy and I started talking to them mm-hmm. and once I started doing that um, then um, shortly after that I became vegan and got involved in animal advocacy and you co-founded compassionate action for animals yeah so um that, that was, um, you know, like I said, I was involved in lots of activist things. And once I started doing animal advocacy, it really called to my heart. Mm. You know? And I, you know, I, I can give reasons of why I think it's an important issue, but I just really felt it deeply that yeah. of, of all the things I could work on. And, you know, I was you know, already doing yeah, so, many, so many different things, like trying to do the best for animals just really called to me. But, you know, I, I still cared about a lot of other issues and did continue and still continue to work on things. Um, and so just a, a year later, after just a year after becoming vegan and being involved in animal advocacy, I understood this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I want to advocate for animals. I don't know what form it's going to take. And, you know, it's a really fortunate, it felt like a coincidence, but I, you know, I was just talking to other people who um, shared a lot of similar values. And these mm-hmm. conversations evolved into starting an organization, Compassion and Action for Animals. And, you know, I had the time and attention for it because I knew this was my number one life priority. Yeah. certainly didn't have any uh, sense that, I, you know, like this was going to be the avenue in which I was going to be an animal advocate. And it ended up being the case. I mean, I, so yeah, I, I co-founded that in 1998 and spent the next 18 years of my life, most of those years, um, with compassion and action for animals. And, you know, eventually a decade after I started it, it um, as a part-time and then a full-time job too. So I got to spend, spend a lot more time on that. Well, it's an amazing organization. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, when we originally connected, uh, my coworker, Adria was like, you should talk to my friend. And oh. I think, he, I think it would be great if you had him on the podcast. And so then of course I was like, oh, who is this guy? you know, like on the internet looking, I was like, oh, he co-founded this organization that I get their monthly emails and that I've followed for a long time. Like, that's pretty amazing. I didn't realize you worked with Adria. I was going to, yeah. introduce, <laughs> I was going to introduce you to Adria. I was thinking, oh, you should oh, Adria. The, oh, no, 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 we're coworkers. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So we know each other. <laughs> great. Great. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I want to get back to what I was saying before about, you know, the, the question that you asked. So, at, you know, one of the reasons I left Compassion and Action for Animals is that I want to do more work outside of the personal consumption world and trying to change individual behavior and diets. Mm. I really wanted to work on uh, policy and, you know, look at structures and systems. Mm-hmm. And I, my life has kind of meandered a bit, but you know, because of that, I don't want the kind of work, you know, which I, you know, I still appreciate and I still participate and um, help out when I can with compassionate action for animals, but I don't want it to define me because, you know, there's other things that I want to do in other perspectives and I'm right. learning and trying different things. And, you know, that's been a big challenge for me to do that, right? Because you, you do something for so long and it becomes so much of what you believe and how you see the world, you know, but right. I need that I, you know, I, I want to, uh, uh, I want to best model behavior I want from other people, which is, you know, to learn and grow. So when you say you left to work more on like policy and systems change, was, are you saying that you are still in the animal advocacy realm, but working on systems and kind of policy or? 
Well, I, what's ended up happening, actually, is that, <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I, I've continued to be involved in animal advocacy. And what I've stumbled upon as a, a little bit different direction is um, looking at uh, capacity building in the movement and hmm. um, the, um, the combination of both wellness and equity and animal advocacy. Hmm. And so some of the ways that's taken form is, um, you know, I mentioned, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be planning a virtual retreat for animal advocates uh, that'll happen in February. And so I've, I've done, a, um, hosted a lot of uh, meditations for animal advocates. Okay. And I hosted an in-person retreat a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, with a very small informal group called Our Wellness and Liberation, which okay. we are trying to, yeah, foster wellness. And the idea is to really help animal advocates center their compassion and love in their uh, work and in their advocacy. Hmm. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And another aspect that complements it is looking at, you know, justice issues and animal advocacy. So, you know, I've been looking at anti-racism efforts and animal advocacy. And so a couple of examples of things I've done there is uh, I joined the board of directors of Encompass that works on racial equity in the animal advocacy movement. They're a national slash international organization. Okay. Um, really great work. They consult with organizations to help with their racial equity work. They host um, conferences for people to learn about the issues and they um, have community for uh, BIPOC and um, people of the global majority, kind of a global term for people of color. Oh, wow, that's so those beautiful. Are, those are some of the activities that they do. Mm -hmm. um, I was also working on, I was leading the equity advisory committee for the animal rights national conference. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, and that, um, you know, unfortunately, because of equity issues, it really, um, uh, the concert, the, the conference was canceled. That's the simple way to explain <laughs> what happened. But you know, just, just some examples of things that I've been doing there. So it's, it, I, haven't, I haven't really worked on that policy thing, I was thinking. Yeah. But I mean, I, honestly, I'm glad I have space to just take where, where I feel called to go, you know, and these, I feel so great about what I'm doing right now and the opportunities. It's been more or less all volunteer, so not okay. as work, but it's, you know, I want to just make sure I have time for the most important things in my life. <laughs> so what called you into the space of wellness for animal advocates? Like, was that something you felt like you were filling a need because it's something you needed and never got? Or like, where did that come from? Yeah, there was a, a few different uh, things that happened. Well, one is that I, it's something that I, I felt like I had for a long time in my life. Like I, um, I, I feel really good about having you know, put a lot of intentional time and effort around having balance in my life and having time for sleep and cooking and eating well and exercising regularly. And I, and I feel like I've done that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but those things were just like what I did, but they were separate from the animal advocacy spaces that that was in. Mm. And so I was, so part of me, part of the thinking was like, oh, these individual practices that I have, what if we have community around those things so that advocates can do this to help them be advocates, you know, also, so I said, um, cultivating compassion and love, but also, um, so that you can sustain it for a long time. Yeah. Um, at the, also the other thing is I went to a meditation at the animal rights, 2017, the animal rights national conference in 2017. Okay. And the folks who led that they had been both animal advocates and meditation leaders for a very long time. And, but those had been separate spaces. And mm -hmm. this was the first time bringing those two together. And so they really understood where activists came from. And, you know, in, in, the, in the realm of wellness and meditation, I've always um, uh, associated a lot of spirituality and meditation as very individualistic. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's for people who have the privilege to do that. And, mm. and that's been like a big turnoff. But what I was seeing here is that when, when we combine these things together, it's, you know, giving ourselves space for wellness and healing and in service of making change in the world and, and doing the best. Yeah. And, and the, the folks who led those meditations, they really understood where advocates came from and like what their experiences are in life because they were also advocates, right? But they also, right. you know, they were meditation leaders who had a really great understanding of 
um, uh, of spirituality and um, you're just approaching things with a lot of love and compassion and humility. And I, I found that so inspiring. And that was the best part of any animal rights conference I'd ever been to. I'd been going to conferences for years and um, we, we, Compassion and Action for Animals hosted a few conferences mm-hmm. uh, before and I thought, well, wow, this is really, this is really meaningful for me. So I really wanted to put more attention and time into that. Um, you know, I've had a long interest also in uh, nonviolence and, uh, and, you know, I see this kind of spirituality, interpersonal nonviolence being effective and being involved in a movement for a long period of time, we, pulling all these to, things together yeah. is, is, is what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, yeah, totally. I um, got certified as a health and wellness coach and I teach yoga and I'm actually in a meditation course right now. And I always tell people that part of why I like doing that work and working with people and sharing about those things is because I think it better prepares people to show up for the world and make change in the world, you know? So it's like almost this selfish endeavor. Like I love doing this coaching or yoga class because I think it'll help people be better for the world and it'll be better community. So it's a both and totally. Yeah. And you know, you, there was another question that you asked and I meant to say yes to that as well. I do, I do feel like I've needed this for myself as well. A lot mm. of the spiritual things, you know, you just go through life and you face some hard things and you really question yourselves at a really, really deep level and, you know, yeah. experience some pain. And, you know, when that happens to me, you know, a lot of the um, uh, meditation and wisdom teachings that I've learned and benefited from have really helped me through that and have really yeah. um, helped guide me. Um, I should say that the work that I do, I really try to be both uh, ecumenical and, you know, try to appeal to people of all or any or no religion or spirituality. I try to be as inclusive in that way um, as I can. Mm-hmm. So that is one avenue that you're working down. And then you also described um, being in the world of animal advocacy and people of color and BIPOC individuals. So what got you down working with that, those intersections? Um, I, uh, um, so in my, in the, in the rest of my life, sometimes <laughs> I've been involved in, like I said, uh, many other issues. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and those have called to me, you know, independently of being an animal advocate, I, you know, I, or, you know, additionally, it's like when I, when I think of compassion and justice, in the world and what I mm-hmm. want to, I see that the need for that in, in uh, human work and doing anti-racism work seems, you know, very important uh, to me too, you know. Um, I mean, obviously it's, this is, as a person of color in this society, it's, you know, it's not hard for me to see the racism in our society. Right. Um, but I, you know, I see all kinds of, uh, yeah, just the, the, oppression that exists and you know I want to make a change in that regard and so I um, I saw this as an opportunity to uh, work on those values that matter to me as well that I don't want to have to put us you know I, I want to um, you know maybe a theme for all of this is I want to sh- try to show up in my full self or find spaces and places to show up mm. in my full self more and and uh, um, being able to do this uh, um, is more opportunity for to show up as my full self. And I, but I also think that, you know, we can make the animal protection movement more powerful and more effective and make a bigger difference for animals, right? So it's both because it's just and because it's more powerful. Right. Um, Did you have any, and if you don't feel the need to share, you totally don't have to, but did you have any personal experiences in the animal rights world of, and the vegan world that you as a person of color were like, oh, there are issues here and we need to talk about these intersections. I interviewed someone, um, Zipporah, the vegan, mm-hmm. um, and she is a black woman and she, if you don't follow her on Instagram, I would totally look her up because she is dropping truth bombs all over the place about privilege and veganism. And it's really important as a white woman 
for me to like be continuing to confront these spaces because it would be really easy for me to just be this like white vegan woman and not think about that. Yeah, I um, what I'll say is I think one of the reasons that's kept me going in animal advocacy is that having been involved in many issues, I mm -hmm. see it less in animal advocacy than I see mm. in a lot of other places. Okay. Um, I think, um, uh, um, you know, I, I think because people's focus on animals, they're um, uh, less likely to be caught up in uh, um, racist thinking but mm -hmm. that said, you know, we, without, um, but what I do see is, you know, without challenging um, uh, conventional ways of thinking and living, we, um, and, and also because folks who are involved in the most prominent and best funded work tend to come from privileged backgrounds, it, it, it perpetuates um, uh, racism and, and racist structures. And it's... Right. Uh, and that's just like a, a, a default ignorant kind of thing, just like the rest of our society and the right. structures. So um, yes, that I see everywhere. And you can see it in like, when you talk about like it being easy to become vegan or, um, uh, you know, promoting foods that are, you know, pretty expensive or, mm. um, uh, or, you know, like having voices that are from a very limited philosophical or narrative background that's like, you know, all about like white people's stories, right? Right. Um, and, you know, the animal advocacy has so much more, that it has like so much more uh, diverse voices. There's so much more opportunity, including the, um, you know, the story that I was telling you a little bit of, of my own story, right? Right. You know, traditions that, uh, Hinduism and uh, India has around vegetarianism that is uh, um, really uh, powerful and has a lot of potential. Totally. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to say that I my personal experiences have generally been pretty good, but at the same time, our movement just like really um, can easily. I I, I don't want to. I I have to be clear. I say I'll, I'll say the movement that's often most visible and best funded because there mm. hasn't been and there always is. Of, like the, the movement is really big right there's a lot of things going on and it's like yes paying attention to and um you know so there, there are a lot of things that are happening and i don't want to downplay what a lot of um uh, leadership that has come from people of color but the mainstream the right. stories that make those kind of headlines or whatever it is yeah tends to be more um more privileged folks right in those spaces. So I, <laughs> I'm curious, knowing that you started that organization in what did you say 1998? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how has being vegan changed for you over the years? Because you know, I've been vegan for a few years. So I've had, like, accessibility to food and information and stuff was just pretty easy for me, but things have changed so drastically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, things have changed really dramatically. And I, you know, I even remember around the time I became vegan, and I went to Uptown in Minneapolis, you know, a mm -hmm. place that, like, you would expect, of all, all places, like, oh, people would know what the word vegan is. Totally. And even then, at that point, I don't, don't even expect that anybody understands. I, like, explain the words, you know, like, do you have anything that doesn't have meat, uh, dairy, or eggs? And I remember a waiter responding that there's at some restaurant and he said, oh yeah, we have things that are vegan. And I'm like, that's amazing that you know that word. Like, I yeah. and now I, I would just like use the word, right? It has changed so dramatically. And I mean, it, and it seems like we're right in the middle of it right now too. You know, it's only, in, only a couple of years ago that I, I'm like, okay, I can't keep up with all the new vegan ice creams and yeah. plant-based meats and such. You know, a few years before that I did. It was like, oh, there's a new one. Let me try that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's been really fortunate. I think that, you know, I, I indicated that because of my background, becoming vegetarian was easy. And, and my, like, my, like I said, my family, the background was lacto uh, vegetarian. So they just, they just used milk. Mm -hmm. um, and because I've pretty much always, uh, um, as an adult, had uh, 
um, control over my food choices and I'm like cooking for myself and maybe other people, I, you know, and not people who aren't vegan and I don't have other people are feeding me that aren't vegan. And because of my economic privilege and access to information about nutrition and uh, because of the places I've lived that had food choices, being vegan has always been a very easy thing for me. Mm. I've had to recognize that a lot of people's experiences are really different. But yeah, I, I mean, as far as the movement and the possibility right now, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic. Yeah, there is, I think, a lack of understanding from some privileged vegans. I remember posting something on Instagram like a year or two ago um, about I was visiting my dad in Florida and we went to a restaurant that had a ton of vegan options and they accidentally put chicken in mine. And I was really nice. And the guy felt so terrible. And I was like, I know you didn't do this on purpose. Like, you know, it's okay. They brought me a new one. And I posted on social media about how like nice they were and how you can have, you can spark conversations in these moments. And this woman responded to me, somebody I don't know, but somebody who's vegan. She's like, that's why I don't eat anywhere that isn't fully vegan and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, that must be nice. <laughs> like <laughs> wherever you live that you have that option. But like I'm in Grand Marais, Minnesota most of the time. And there's, I wouldn't eat out. There's no place that's fully vegan. I mean, I'm not eating out anywhere right now because of COVID, but still like just those comments where you're like, wow, you have no idea. <laughs> like that's a real privilege. If you can be like, I don't eat anywhere, but only vegan places. I'm like, whoa. All right. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, this is such a good opportunity to have humility about everybody's journeys and choices. Yeah. You know? I think that, I mean, that's, I, I think the whole question of people becoming vegan and, you know, we just have to look at everybody's lives are, um, they have, there's so many different, you know, I've, I kind of indicated some of the, like, you know, access to information and food and, right. um, uh, and, and who is in your household and who you're cooking uh, with or for and money and all these things. And so w- we really have to let go of this idea that whatever we think the choice is best for us, that other people, their circumstances are the same. Instead, you know, look at it as can we empower people to make the best choices um, that they can. That's a really good way to rephrase that. Cause I know in the beginning, I did not see my own privilege in this movement. And I did not understand after I became vegan, why everybody in my life wasn't following suit. You know, I was just like, why aren't people listening to me? This is, this is easy. You know, I'm sure I use the word easy takes a step back and some self-reflection to be uh, a little more thoughtful about how I share information and the way I talk about things. Yeah. And I, you know, to the folks who, you know, I, having spent so much time in animal advocacy and with animal advocates, I can really empathize with the anger and pain and frustration that animal advocates feel about what's happening to animals and a cruelty. Right. And so when people are speaking vociferously and saying, you have to change right now. I mean, I can really empathize with that anger because, you know, that's real and, Totally. I think that, uh, um, yeah, I hope that on the other side, I'm not shaming people for saying, for like being upset about this, especially when I see that, like that's coming from such a great place of really wanting the best for animals. And, you know, one thing I've been thinking about um, is, you know, anger often comes, I don't, maybe, I don't want to say initially always, but often comes when you don't feel very powerful. Mm. Um, And so what you can, when, when you feel anger, you might can reflect upon that. Okay. Like where, how, and where am I not feeling powerful right now? That like a loss be, of control. Right. Right. And so, and, 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 and empathize with that. Right. And so then, then ask yourself, you can, another question you can ask yourself is how am I powerful? How can I be powerful? How can I, you know, make the most difference and flip that around. Right. And how can I make the biggest difference for animals? And it might, you might find yourself saying some different things, but um, I think that can be a really helpful exercise. Wow, that's really powerful. I think, I mean, that's a useful exercise even out of that animal advocacy world, right? Like getting angry and being like, okay, where is this coming from? Where am I not feeling powerful, but how am I empowered? Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to emphasize it's not shaming 
anybody right. for feeling anger and not trying to push the anger away and saying that's not right or you shouldn't do that because so often that's what happens, right? And, mm. you know, what we see right now is so much anger from people of color and, you know, not, totally. uh, not seeing empathy for that anger, you know, mm-hmm. from, from white folks. Shaming that anger. Right. And just ignoring it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Too, right? Just not wanting to deal with it. Yeah. Because it feels scary or threatening or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you had any, like, crazy success stories talking to people? You're like, oh, I never thought this person would be vegan, but we had this amazing conversation or they ended up as a volunteer or anything well, like that? one of my favorite success stories, I don't know what happened to this. I don't, I don't know where it went, but this conversation uh, really... Um, uh, um, was really powerful. So I was handing out some leaflets um, mm-hmm. several years ago about factory farming and veganism. And uh, one of the last leaflets I handed out, um, this guy said, you know, the guy says, hey, what's this about? And I'm like, you know, we're trying to encourage people to choose plant-based foods and factory farming. And then he said, and he says to me, God, uh, God wants us to use animals as we please or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I thought, well, you know, I, um, uh, I've heard this kind of thing before and I, right. I've seen other people respond in this way. So let me try. And I said, well, I think that God would be, um, you know, look kindly upon us if we, um, are compassionate to animals. And he responded, did you, have you read the Bible? Do you know what it says? And, you know, and I recognize that I'm like, I'm not going to win this debate. I know I'm confident he knows the Bible much better than I do. Totally. So I, I asked something else. I asked him, do you know an animal? And mm. he said, yeah. And I'm like, um, what, what animal um, is that? He's like, well, you know, I, I have a cat. Oh, what's your cat's name? And um, he said his cat's name. I'm like, well, tell me a little bit about your cat. What is your cat like and dislike? And, you know, he said a little bit. I'm like, well, I, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to advocate for animals or like that. And he's like, oh, you know, I, I see that. You have a point. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, I was amazed because I cannot think of another time when I had something that seemed to be going in such a bad direction. <laughs> where I, like, obviously, I'm not going to convince anybody of anything here. You, to changing. And I, I think it's so important. Personal narrative is so important. Mm. And really engaging with individuals, right? If I say 10 billion animals are suffering on factory farms, like that's so hard for people to grasp or understand or yeah. like connect with any emotion. On the other hand, if I tell you, I met this uh, sheep named Frederick at uh, Soul Space Sanctuary. And let me tell you about this sheep. That's something that they engage with. And you can ask them. People have relationships with animals, often companion animals. Right. But um, whatever animal that is, that, that can be an opportunity. And to really avoid, um, a lot of the philosophical um, things can be a, a, a trap and a, and a way to intellectualize things that mm. often isn't very constructive. Um, I learned some of uh, um, this from, d- from doing a little bit of phone banking on the 2012 marriage amendment campaign. I was just going to say that. Really? Yep. That's because the- I was at Augsburg in undergrad at the time. Yeah. And rallying and doing stuff. And I was like, that sounds really similar to how things happened in <laughs> 2012. Yeah. yeah. So my friend, my friend, Sarah, she, who I know from animal advocacy, she worked a lot in that campaign and encouraged me to do phone banking. And uh, we, you know, we did phone banking and what, what like, they pretty much tell you, you can't use words like justice or equality or anything like that. These are like banned words. Um, mm-hmm. And you just have to ask people about their personal experience and about the personal experience that, of people they know and tell about your personal experience and share that. And these, you know, I only had a couple conversations. You, you make phone calls and people don't answer the phone often. But the right. conversations I had were incredible. And I'm like, wow. I'm being both more persuasive and engaging people better and build bridge building. I mean, like it was just, it was just great, you know, and, and this is somebody, you know, I have so much uh, experience trying to engage and persuade people on things right. for so many years. It wasn't, I wasn't new to that. Um, right. That was really, you know, the ground shifted. And so since then I've been trying to do more personal narrative. Yeah. Can, can I tell you about Frederick the sheep? Please. Yeah. So Frederick, the sheep is a sheep that I met at uh, Soul Space Sanctuary. And it's really funny. So 
the first time <laughs> I went there four years ago, I see this animal uh, come up to a, the fence kind of near us from the distance. And I'm like, I, just in my head, I made a mental note, oh, that's a goat. And then when we got closer, <laughs> I realized that was a sheep and I'm like, oh my God, what kind of animal advocate am I? I can't even tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. You know? And then a little bit later, when we're hanging out and Frederick, the sheep comes and like brushes up against me, like just being really friendly, but he's huge. I mean, he's a sheep and he's like yeah. almost knocking me over, but it was just like kind of funny and kind of strange. And I'm like, this is really, I don't like this. I don't think that's how sheep uh, behaves. Well, it turns out that um, Frederick was raised with a bunch of dogs oh. and, <laughs> and just learned all behaviors from dogs and just like was acting like a dog. That's what I was thinking. I was like, it sounds like a dog that wanted sounds attention. Sounds like a dog. Yeah. This, this sheep that acts like a dog. And, and then I realized, oh, that's why I probably thought that was a goat because goats of course are curious, right? Yes. So that just not, it wasn't the appearance as much as like the motions of that animal was more like what a, a goat is like right and so then I didn't feel quite as bad <laughs> but I it's just like you know the, these the individual stories of these animals are just incredible you know mm-hmm. oh that's so um so fun I think some of what you're identifying too with like the asking questions of people and those personal narratives reminds me of Claire Mann the vegan psychologist yeah, she's out of yeah know. Australia. She's really, really great. Um, I interviewed her a while back, but I found her r- right when I officially became vegan because I was struggling with how to talk to people in my life because I felt like I was going through this angry vegan phase and everyone thought I was crazy. And I was just Googling all this stuff and her name came up. And one of the things that she talks about that's helped me a lot is just really asking questions of people. Yeah. And that's kind of like what you were saying, you know, like Absolutely. when people are getting defensive yeah. or people are um, unsure or their hackles are kind of coming up, just being like, oh, well, what does that feel like for you? Like, what is what is happening for you right now or whatever? And really just like making people name why this conversation is hard or name where their information came from. Like, it's really about the personal narrative. Yeah, and I, a, a kind of a, a line of reasoning that I'm curious about as well that I think coincides with this, it works well with this is, you know, you can, you can ask people about the experience that they have with animals and the animals mm-hmm. that they care about and the stories of those animals, but then also to ask, like, what makes that person feel powerful, right? Mm. And that, that, that's, that can be a broad question because usually when you ask these questions, people will express some compassion or care for animals. They have some relationship with animals, right? And so then the follow-up question can be, how can they feel like they can make a difference for animals? And, you know, you know, I asked this, you know, part of the reason I go in this direction is because, you know, I've said that I want to look at systems and structures and not just individual consumer change. So I'm really right. enthusiastic when people want to make a difference for animals in really any any way, whatever right. like works best for them, right? So I, I want people, I want to help people think about like what they would do to make a difference for animals, whatever that might look like and mm. would make them feel like they make a real difference. And I, you know, one of the reasons this, came up to me is, you know, having done a lot of, uh, you know, uh, one-on-one persuasive, uh, you know, like showing videos of factory farming and then having conversations with people. I've done this, you know, I've spent so many hours doing this, talk to thousands of people. And sometimes mm-hmm. the response I get, what I understood is um, what I'm hearing from people is, you know, they, they see these videos, they're horrified about what's happening to animals on factory farms. And then I say, oh, you know, like you can make a difference by becoming vegan. And there's a disconnect there where they don't feel like that's powerful or important or whatever, right? Mm. And I, you know, I, of course, I think it would be great if they did change their diet, but I also know that if they did something else to try to make a difference for animals, I would also really like that as well. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is. And I don't want to limit people by saying like, the only thing you can do is to change your diet. And if like, and maybe when I'm getting that response from people and they had, uh, they could think of, they could imagine other ways that they can make a difference for animals, then they might be more willing to engage and uh, willing to make a difference. Oh, that's interesting. So like, what are some of those other ways that if someone, let's say you have this conversation 
and you want to suggest other ways and they're like, well, how else can I, like, what would you tell that person? You know, the easiest, <laughs> nothing is easy, right? Um, the, <laughs> maybe, maybe the easiest to explain is, um, you know, like grocery stores and food companies and, you know, dining halls that, uh, um, cor- you know, corporate dining halls or whatever is to have them have more plant-based options that um, or, or a restaurant any of these institutions that are serving food is to to um, uh, encourage those places to have more plant-based foods um, when those are there people will often choose them when yeah. there's more opportunity it's easier for people to make a change if they yeah there's there's a lot of the good things that come that and that isn't asking them to make a, i mean they can do that without them personally making a difference but you know, a lot of times the obstacles that people have of, you know, like, you know, you had mentioned before about somebody, I only eat, eat at vegan restaurants. It's like, well, if there's, you know, accessible vegan food, then people are more likely to, to take it, right? And right. want to become vegan. So that that's something that I would encourage. Um, I, I think that um, being political is something that is important. And I don't know uh, hmm. the most practical uh, and effective things in terms of uh, doing things at a political level with animals. But I, I do think that's important to work on uh, getting candidates in office that are pro-animal and to get um, uh, legislation passed. Um, yeah, there's a couple of examples. Those are awesome. I, I think that people feel more empowered when they have options. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. Like, okay, this would be great, but also like, look at these options. Maybe you start here and it feels like they yeah. have a little more control in the situation maybe than just like, well, vegan yes. is your only option. That's it. And if you can't do it, you suck. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'd love for people to see a thousand options, right? Just so right. Many, and maybe not a thousand, that might be overwhelming, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like a thousand. But, yeah, but but just a, just a lot of different choices and for them right. to choose the thing that works best for them. Totally. So I, I love doing this podcast because I have connected with amazing people who do amazing work in the world, including yourself. Um, but something I like to ask everyone I talk to, because I think it's so important is given all the work you're doing and all of the things you're involved in. And that's all, that's like, that's deep work. That's heart work. That's, that's a lot. How do you take care of yourself at the same time? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, as, as I've said, taking care of myself is really important. I, um, uh, you know, I have the privilege right now of not working that much. I only work about half time. Okay. And now with the pandemic, it's all from home. So I have mm-hmm. no commute time. So I have a lot of time to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned before sleeping, I really love to cook. I try to cook healthy food. Um, I do triathlons and train for triathlons. As soon as oh, I wow. say that, that sounds like pretty overwhelming to most people, but um, I, it, it sounds, you know, maybe expensive and complicated, but I, you know, I just <laughs> swim laps in the lake when uh, it's summer and all my training for the bicycling is just commuting a lot. And I travel by bicycle a whole lot. And then okay. running, running, of course, is the easiest thing because it's so um, accessible and takes right. time. Um, but, you know, that's, that's my kind of main uh, fitness thing. I love to cross and ski and uh, in the winter too. Um, and yeah, spending a lot of time outside um, pre pandemic times spending quality time with friends, mm-hmm. uh, regularly meditating, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and really, you know, um, tr- trying to find balance in how much I take on, mm. uh, I, you know, as, as an activist, I see so many opportunities everywhere and, yes. um, and trying to like really feel into when to say yes and no. That's something I'm um. still learning. <laughs> <laughs> Already. I was like, I don't know. Carly, you seem to do everything. I don't know how you do all of that, you know, Um, (laughs) just from seeing your online presence. I'm like, that is incredible that you do all of that. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a balance. It's a challenge, you know, and I, like when I, when I get my, when I get overwhelmed and I'm doing quote unquote too much, I try to remind myself, well, I'm doing all of this right now because 
I just felt so enthusiastic about these opportunities. Mm. I'm really glad that I can do it. Having, yeah, I have a lot of gratitude for um, the opportunities I have. You know, I know it comes from a lot of privilege that yeah. I have so much time and resources. And, you know, that, that feeling is, uh, that feeling of gratitude is really important to try to come from a place of um, uh, where things feel generative and I'm doing things because of possibility, not because I'm trying to stop bad things. I mean, not to say that there aren't bad things happening, but you know, like, um, but this is like how I am approaching the um, the world. And I, yeah, I, the, I I mentioned meditation, and I would say also, you know, just kind of wisdom practices that mm. around humility and nonviolence and compassion. And, you know, it's like, for example, I, you know, in the past, I had studied nonviolent communication for a number of years, and I found okay. it to be uh, very helpful. And um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Is there anything else that you want to share or um, talk about that you feel like there hasn't been space for? No, I, I can't think of anything. I'm, I'm one of those people who would always think of something like as soon as you log off. So <laughs> I probably, I probably will. Yeah. So if people want to connect with you after hearing this, what's the best way to connect with you? Um, I uh, have a website and social media at UniPN. That's U-N-N-Y-P-N. Um, so that's Instagram, Facebook, and uh, my website is unipn.org. Okay. Um, and you can email me or contact me in any of those forms. Awesome. And I'll put all that in the show notes so people Great. can get a hold of you. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me. It was really lovely to talk to you and I look forward to continuing to connect with you. Yeah. Thanks, Carly. Thanks for listening to another episode of Consciously Clueless. If you're enjoying this podcast, hit subscribe wherever you're listening. If you want to help me get this into the ears of more listeners, send it to a friend, text it to a family member, share on social media and tag me. Whatever you can do always helps me out. And if you really want to help this podcast grow, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and you could be read on air in the future as a review of the week on my Sunday solo episodes. Until next time.